morning, everyone. My name is Christine. I'm going to be reading the Bible for us today. Um, I'm going to lead us in prayer before I read, so please bow your heads and pray with me. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us, showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son. We ask you now to teach us through your word so that we may be ready to serve you for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The first Bible reading will be from Zechariah chapter 12, um, verses 1 to 14. <clears throat> A prophecy, the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord, who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundation of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person, declares... I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, the people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a firepot in a woodpile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume all the surrounding peoples right and left, but Jerusalem will remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwelling of Judah first, so that the honor of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Hadad Rimen in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn each clan by itself with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. The second reading will be from Zechariah chapter 14, verses 9 to 21. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord, and his name, the only name. The whole land, from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, will become like the Arabah. But Jerusalem will be raised up high from the Benjamin gate to the side of the first gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the royal wine presses, and will remain in its place. It will be inhabited, never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. This is the plague with which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. 
Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. On that day, people will be stricken by the Lord with great panic. They will seize each other by the hand and attack one another. Judah too will fight at Jerusalem. The wealth of all the surrounding nations will be collected. Great quantities of gold and silver and clothing. A similar plague will strike the horses and mules, the camels and donkeys, and all the animals in those camps. Then the survivors from all the nations that have attacked Jerusalem will go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. If any of the peoples of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, they will have no rain. If the Egyptian people do not go up and take part, they will have no rain. The Lord will bring on them the plague he inflicts on the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not go up to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. On that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty, and all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Christine. And good day, everyone. Uh, great to be joining you this morning. Uh, in case we haven't met before or we've only kind of seen each other in passing, I'm Lachlan. Uh, I'm one of the assistant ministers here at NCA Church, and typically I look after the 9am congregation meeting over at Camaray, uh, so it's a rare treat for me to be able to join you all here at Narrenburn this morning. Um, and so particularly if you're new or visiting, uh, welcome, me too. Uh, glad to have you joining us as we get stuck into God's Word together, uh, and as we look at the book of Zechariah for the last time. Uh, so before we do that, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for making yourself known to us and showing us the way of salvation through your faith in your Son. Teach us through your Word and equip us for every good work, for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, cleaning up messes is something I'm sure we are all uh, familiar with, um, particularly over the last two weeks. I'm sure many of us have stories uh, of messes that have been caused by all the water that we've had around. Um, you know, yes, uh, other parts of the country and state and even city have fared much worse than we generally have here. Uh, but even around here, there is mess to be cleaned up. Uh, I saw there were some big rock falls over at Tunks Park. Uh, a little bit of a poke around both of our church buildings uh, will reveal water damage in various places and I'm very thankful to our wardens who've been working hard uh, with the cleanup to help make sure that our buildings are uh, usable this morning. Um, at home we had a water leak in our bedroom and uh, like many others uh, I'm sure we've also noticed the mould springing up which is normally not a problem. Um, we all have our tales to tell during, from during the week um, but there's lots of mess to be cleaned up and as we come to Zechariah 12 to 14 we actually get a glimpse of the day that God is cleaning up the mess. Um, as we tease it out, and we get a message, uh, an image of God's work in the world um, that helps us trust him. It helps us trust him in the midst of the mess, to trust him as he's cleaning up the mess of sin. 
you've probably already got a sense of it from uh, the reading that Christine just gave, but there's a lot going on in these chapters. Uh, just like uh, 9 to 11, uh, that was last week's unit, uh, there's a lot going on in those chapters too. And I'm suggesting that these two units, so 9 to 11 uh, as one and, and 12 to 14 as another, it's a little bit like a street art style mural. Uh, so it should be a, a picture that pops up on the screen here. There you go. Uh, so this is a part of a mural by Alfredo Segatori in Buenos Aires. And you can see, you know, there's his son in the foreground. He's holding a marble, but the marble is actually the world. Uh, you can sort of start to see as the picture fades into the background, some images of scenes from the neighborhood, some of the people who work in the metalworks there. Uh, but if you look at it from the other end on the next page, uh, it gets a lot stranger. You know, you see a motorcycle riding off into space and there's a UFO. It's weird. Uh, street art style murals, they have these vivid pictures that at first glance just seem to have no relationship to each other that are kind of weird and overwhelming. But as you spend time with them, as you understand a bit more about the person who painted it, the message of the mural starts to actually become clear. I really don't know what the message of this mural is, and we're not looking at that this morning. We're looking at Zechariah 12 to 14. Um, so, you know, you Google it later if you're really interested. But um, the important background for understanding Zechariah's imagery is the Bible up until this point. Uh, because as we've been seeing throughout Zechariah, uh, throughout the book, he alludes to, references, and repurposes different parts of the earlier Old Testament in order to paint this vivid picture of what God is doing and is going to do. Uh, so, you know, for some of us, this might just be ground that we're familiar with, but, you know, in case you're not familiar or in case you've forgotten, in the grand sweep of the Bible story, Zechariah comes almost a thousand years after God rescued Israel from Egypt and brought them into the Promised Land. It comes almost 500 years after the Golden Age of the Kingdom of Israel, people like David and Solomon and the First Temple were built, and it comes almost 70 years after God destroyed the Kingdom of Judah, exiled a remnant to Babylon, because of their wickedness. And in chapters 12 to 14, as Zechariah paints this picture of that day, uh, the day we're going to see, it actually gives us a picture of hope, of great reasons to hope. And so for any of us here, uh, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, uh, questions that Zechariah raises for us are questions of hope. You know, we all make messes of our lives. No matter how hard we might try, we inevitably contribute to broken relationships and pain and suffering, even hurting those we love. You know, what reason is there to hope when you realize you aren't just the one that made the mess that needs to be cleaned up, but you are the mess that needs to be cleaned up? What can you hope in? And so, you know, questions actually about hope and what you hope in it could actually be a good non-threatening way to take conversations a little bit deeper with friends or, or colleagues or family members in the coming weeks with some natural segues into what we are hearing God say this morning in Zechariah. And there's also a lot of material to cover in the chapters. I'm not going to be covering everything in detail, but I'll try to give some general comments on most sections. So if you're reading it you know, by yourself during the week or at Bible study, there's at least a bit of framework for approaching some of the different sections. Um, and as we go through this section, you know, Zechariah, he jumps around from idea to idea. He's painting this picture of that day, uh, but it can get a bit confusing. Um, so instead of just starting at 12.1 and working our way through, we're going to focus on some of the bigger ideas and how they're approached from different angles. It does mean we'll jump around the passage a little bit more, but I think it'll be helpful for us seeing the big picture of 
of these chapters. And so we're going to do it in, in four points. Uh, we're going to look at the speaker, uh, the day of battle and victory, the day of cleansing, and that day today. So there are four points. The, day, the speaker, uh, the day of battle and victory, the day of cleansing, and that day today. Let's get stuck in. Uh, the speaker, the one who is speaking here, is God. Uh, now, it might not sound like a big deal, you know, because we're looking at the Bible, uh, but there's a distinction in this passage in how God is introduced. Uh, throughout Zechariah, the various visions and prophecies have introduced God as uh, the Lord, maybe the Lord Almighty, or this is the word of the Lord. That, that's been about the extent of it. But here, we are reminded at the outset that this is the Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, and who forms the human spirit within a person. It's a far grander introduction than we've seen so far in Zechariah. And as we see, there are many unpleasant things in store for God's people. But right at the outset, God reminds his people, he's the one who created the heavens and the earth and gives life to people. Despite the hardships on the road in front of them, he has the power to bring about the future he's working towards. Well, God is the speaker, but what is this day going to look like? It's going to be a day of battle and victory. And we'll start by focusing on 12 to 9. For people who knew their Old Testament back in Zechariah's day, Zechariah pretty much directly quotes several verses from Isaiah 51. Uh, he reminds them of a time when Assyria the global superpower of the time had wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel, had destroyed the lands of Judah and besieged Jerusalem. But after the siege had begun, God decimated the Assyrian army and the king of Assyria was forced to abandon the siege and go home. And throughout this opening section, Zechariah continues to layer in other images from other parts of the Old Testament, uh, from the time of the Exodus, uh, from the time of the judges and the time of kings, painting a picture of God's victory on behalf of his people. But all of those allusions, there are also times when the situation of God's people seemed hopeless. There is victory. God will save his people, but it comes after a battle that involves conflict and bloodshed and an enemy that seems almost overwhelming. But despite the overwhelming times of trial that God's people will face, there is hope because God is fighting for them. He will be victorious. And it's an idea that's repeated a few times throughout these chapters. So, for example, chapter 14, verses 1 to 7 is quite similar. Uh, there is a content warning there, uh, but what it's doing is drawing on images of the past to help Israel understand the future. Uh, in 14, 1-7, it's drawing on the horrific images of Babylon attacking and barbarously treating God's people. And it highlights that once again in the days to come, the nations will do terrible things to God's people. The sort of things that without advanced warning of what to expect, you could be caused to question, you know, is God even there? Is he good at all? Does he love us? Is he even in control? But God has warned his people what to expect. And amidst it all, for God and his people, the end is glorious and without question. Chapter 14, verse 9. Have a look. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will be one Lord 
and his name the only name. And it goes on in verse 10 to describe the land of Judah, that's Geba to Rimon, will be like the Arabah, basically a a flat plain in Israel, uh, compared to Jerusalem, which is raised up. So picture this mountain fortress, raised and secure above all the lands that it surveys. And what's more, in chapter 14, verse 20, it's a holy city. Uh, holy to the Lord is what was written on the high priest's turban. You know, the high priest was the one who went into the temple, into the holy of holies, only once a year. But the end state of God's kingdom is that even common, everyday items are holy to the Lord. It's a picture of this whole city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants loving God and his ways and living them out. Throughout chapters 12 to 14, God holds out this glorious future for his people, a certain future but it doesn't come without difficulty. The road will be long and arduous, but the destination is sure. God will ensure his people arrive. Of course, the other group to consider is the nations who face the opposite situation to God's people. They're gathered around Jerusalem and their success appears guaranteed at several parts throughout these chapters, and yet their assault on God's people will ultimately fail and they will destroy themselves as God fights for his people. It's seen again from uh, another angle in 14, 12 to 15 as a horrific plague that strikes them as they gather to attack God's people. And it's another passage that alludes to some of God's great rescues of the past through God sending plagues in the book of Exodus to rescue his people from Egypt. Or once again, God striking down the Assyrian army that had laid siege to Jerusalem in the course of a single night that we heard about earlier. The repeated message is that the nations who stand opposed to God and his people will not win. No matter how powerful they appear, no matter how certain the victory seems, in the end, victory goes to God. So throughout these chapters, God warns his people the future will be tough. There will be times of trouble and turmoil, but despite this, there is great reason to hope. God has not lost control. He's working his purposes out. Now, those ideas, there's a similarity to what God said across chapters 9 to 11 in the previous unit. Uh, But in the previous unit, there was also a tension. See, on the one hand, we saw in chapters 10 and 11, that God had, uh, in 9, 10, 11, God had promised peace for his people through his king. But on the other hand, his people were returned to the behaviours that led them into exile in Babylon and the destruction of Jerusalem in the temple not even a hundred years earlier. The people were turning away from God, worshipping idols. They were oppressing those they had power over. Their sin was just as much of a problem now, even having been through the judgment and devastation of exile, as it was before. God's people were on track back to judgment and exile, not the glorious future that God had promised. But here, in chapters 12 to 14, we see the day of the Lord described as a day where God will deal with the problem of sin once for all, where God will act to move his people off the railroad to destruction and exile and on track to his glorious kingdom because it is a day of cleansing. It's our second next point. Uh, Following on from the battle imagery in 12, 2 to 9, and the ultimate victory that God wins for his people, we zoom into the heart of that victory. Verse 10. 
God says, and I will pour out on the house of Jacob, uh, David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Throughout chapters 12 to 14, we see God's people in battle with the nations. But throughout the Old Testament, it's important to remember that the difficult struggles that God's people have against the nations, well, it's symptomatic of a deeper problem. It's symptomatic of the problem of their sin. I mean, throughout the time of the judges, Israel struggles with nations like Philistia, Moab and Edom because of their sin. When Assyria wipes out the northern kingdom of Israel and devastates the southern kingdom of Judah, laying siege to Jerusalem, it's because of their sin. When Babylon comes and destroys Judah and Jerusalem and takes a remnant into exile, it's because of their sin. Israel's struggle against the nations is symptomatic of Israel's problem with sin. And in verse 10, we see God deal with the real problem. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. Do you notice what's going on there? There's, there's two things that God is uh, pouring out when he pours out his spirit. He pours out a spirit of undeserved mercy and he pours out a spirit of supplication. A spirit of undeserved mercy. He forgives his people, but he also pours out this spirit of supplication, or as the ESV puts it, pleas for mercy, a spirit of asking for grace. God does both sides. He works in his people to turn them back so that they would turn back to him, and he works in his people as he forgives them. Well, how does this incredible work of God happen? He continues in verse 10. They will look on me the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Uh, there's a couple of things to note about this pierced one. Uh, firstly, God speaks about him in both the first and the third person. Uh, they will look on me, the one who they've pierced, and they will mourn for him. It's something to peg for later. But his death also causes national mourning in verse 11. Mourning like uh, Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. It's another allusion to another part of the Old Testament when King Josiah, one of the great kings of Judah, died fighting on the plain of Megiddo and it caused a national day of mourning. And so this allusion, it points to this pierced one being the king, the descendant of David. And as we've gone through Zechariah, we've seen that God has promised the return of the king. But it's a promise that hasn't yet been fulfilled in Zechariah's day. But here we see that despite the great hopes of the return of the king who would usher in God's kingdom, the king gets killed. And the people don't just mourn because their hopes for a restored Israel are dashed. They mourn because they recognize their own culpability in his death. They, uh, it's the one who, they will mourn the one who they have pierced. It's more than a formal day of mourning, it's personal. Uh, we see the clans and their houses and wives, entire families mourning in private. It's not just national day of flags at half-mast. It is a tragedy 
that hits everyone hard. It's a tragic picture of the long-awaited king who would set things right and usher in God's kingdom being killed by the very people looking forward to his coming. But it's not just the people's fault. Because as we look at it from another angle, this is still part of God's sovereign plan. And we're not looking at these verses too closely, but at the end of chapter 13, it shows the same event from a different perspective. Chapter 13, verse 7. Awake sword against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Uh, The striking of this shepherd, the leader, is part of God's plan. But it is through this piercing that God has poured out his spirit of grace and supplication, that God acts to clean the mess of sin by cleaning sinful people. God brings his people to his repentance and opens the fountain that will cleanse them from sin and impurity. Again, 13 verse 1. And that's cause for great hope for God's people because God is the one who does what they could not. He doesn't just clean up the mess of sin in the world, he cleans sinful people so that they can be part of God's glorious kingdom. But what about that day today? These passages don't just offer a picture of hope for God's people circa 400 BC, they are an image that gives us hope today. Because the New Testament writers, they pick up on this imagery of the chapters here, particularly regarding Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, John, one of Jesus' disciples, recorded how at the end of the day when Jesus was crucified, Roman soldiers came around to hasten the deaths of Jesus and the men being crucified by breaking their legs. John 19, 33. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. As another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. It's in Jesus' death that God finally opens the fountain to cleanse his people from sin. And so he is the only way that we can have our sin washed away. The one who was a descendant of King David, who was set apart as God's king, and who was in fact God in the flesh, was pierced for us so that our sin could be cleansed. If We who pierced him through our sin turn to him and ask for mercy. And so, you know, as I've been chewing over these few chapters, one of the striking things is there is no imperative here. There is no now do this. But there are great treasures here for us to take away. Firstly, it is incredible to see just how precious it is to turn to God. Like we saw, God has poured out a spirit of grace and supplication, a spirit that causes us to turn to him and a spirit that offers mercy. There are a couple of things to hold on to there. Firstly, it is a great comfort to know that even recognising our sin and recognising our need to turn back to God is a sign that his spirit is at work in us. As we continue to struggle with sin, this side of glory... I don't think I'm the only one who's ever wondered, can God really keep loving me? Can he really keep forgiving me as I continue to struggle with the same things over and over again? 
my repeated struggles with sin could lead to hopeless despair. But here in Zechariah, we see that recognizing our need for mercy is actually God at work in us. Even as we struggle with the same things year after year, the first step is coming to God and asking for his grace and mercy. When we recognize our sin and recognize our need for God to forgive us, it is great to know that that is already God at work in you. Uh, yes, we should grieve our sin, but don't despair because recognizing that you need God's forgiveness is a sign of God working in you, that you turn to him and ask for forgiveness. And if he's worked in you so that you would turn and ask him for forgiveness, he will give you that as well. It's an incredibly precious truth to hold on to. And so, day by day, week by week, value regular repentance. Uh, you know, I'll easily say, repentance is important. You know, as a church and individuals, uh, we should repent, we should confess our sins. But it's easy for it to just become a box to tick, isn't it? Uh, whether it's corporately at church or, or privately in our homes. But our regular repentance, it shows us God's double-barreled grace towards us, his grace in offering us undeserved mercy and his grace in helping us seek undeserved mercy. Recognizing our guilt, turning to him and confessing our sin, knowing that he cleanses us with the blood of Jesus is a great treasure that Zechariah holds out for us. But there's more. There is more to hope in as well because while the day of the Lord began at the cross, it continues now and into the future. There is a sense in which we live in that day now, a day where there are hardships and trials, where those who are opposed to God and his people will do things that will make it look like God isn't in control. But we know that's not true. We've heard God speak in Zechariah 12 to 14 to expect terrible times. But at the same time, to be able to hold on to hope and so keep trusting in God and living his ways, treasuring holiness that is pleasing to the Lord as we seek to walk in his ways and tell others of what he's done because that's what he calls us to and we've seen the fate that awaits those who continue to turn against him we seek to share the gospel of Jesus with people because we've seen the horrible future that awaits those who continue to reject God and his ways and his offer of mercy but knowing that it's God who pours out his spirit of grace and of supplication, that means it's really important to pray for those people as well, to pray that God would help them recognize their sin and turn back to him. We are still, of course, waiting for that day, but it is a certain day. And when John, Jesus' disciple, writing in the book of Revelation, looks forward to it in, in Revelation 20 and 21, it really echoes the picture that we see at the end of Zechariah 14. Is a day when the enemies of God and his people are finally conquered and the heavenly Jerusalem comes down and it's defined by the holiness of his people, their dedication to God and his ways, and there is finally peace. And we have hope because that day has already started. It has begun at the cross and so we know it will continue into the future and we have great reason to rejoice so no matter the situations we face day in day out times of joy or weeping through the night we have assurance 
of the end that God has planned for us. We have much to hope in, whatever trials we face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us in Jesus. The grace that you have shown us in revealing our sin to us, that we would turn back to you. Help us to continue to live lives of repentance, of turning from sin and turning to you. And help us to continue to know the hope that we have in Jesus, the hope that we have in the certain future that you have planned for your people. And help us to share that hope with others. Have mercy on those we know, our friends, our family, our colleagues who don't know Jesus, that they might see their sin and trust in Jesus and be saved as well. Amen.